Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Bretton Goods podcast. I'm speaking to Mark Lutter, who is founder and executive director of the Chartered Cities Institute, which is a nonprofit dedicated to creating the ecosystem for charter cities. Mark has a PhD from George Mason University in Economics. Hi, Mark. Thanks, uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, uh, the Charter Cities Institute works on creating an, an ecosystem for charter cities. So could you explain to our listeners who may not have heard about a charter city, what is it and why is it needed? So a charter city is a new city with better laws. Um, every year there's over 75 million new urban residents. So that's about the equivalent to 10 um, Hong Kongs. These new urban residents are mostly concentrated in Africa and Asia. They're not moving to cities like New York and London. They're moving to cities like um, Lagos and Mumbai. And the cities that they're moving to tend to not have great governance. Uh, so historically, what happens um, when there is urbanization is that people move to cities, they become part of a labor market, they become productive over time, and then they and their kids and their grandkids have better lives. So you can think of kind of the classic story of New York where somebody moves uh, to New York with nothing but the clothes on their back. And then two or three generations later, um, their kids um, own, I don't know, a restaurant or a factory or, or doctors or lawyers, whatever it is, right? And um, that relationship between uh, urbanization and productivity is breaking down in some parts of the world. So people are moving to cities and they live in slums and their kids live in slums and their grandkids live in slums. And there isn't this um, dynamic cycle of economic growth that creates the, 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 the opportunity and the wealth that allows um, the, 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 the people and their descendants to live better lives. Okay. And so the idea behind a charter city is to say, okay, one of the most important determinants of long-term economic growth is governance. Um, it can be very difficult to change governance on a national level. However, on a local level, particularly on greenfield sites where there are very few stakeholders, it might be possible to get much more substantive reforms um, that can set the stage for long-run economic growth. And so over the last kind of two or three generations, we've seen cities like Singapore, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, and Dubai become world-class cities in part um, uh, because of governance um, and, and good decisions by their leaders. And we believe it's possible, maybe not to replicate those successes uh, entirely, but even if you replicate half of those successes, that still could be very substantive in terms of um, lifting tens of millions of people out of poverty. Um, so the Charter Cities Institute adopts a different approach from other charter cities, um, nonprofits. Why did you choose to decide to build the ecosystem than actually, uh, than um, go to the process of building a charter city by yourself? So several things. Um, one, uh, if you wanna build a charter city, you probably should use a for-profit entity rather than a non-profit entity. Um, two, uh, if we look at the history of charter cities, uh, Paul Romer originated the term in 2009 with a TED talk uh, he talked with the government in Madagascar as well as Honduras. Neither of those projects worked out um, in the short term. And so he uh, left and then uh, has have made very few public statements on charter cities. The result is because the entire charter cities um, movement at the time was caught up with Romer. 
uh, as soon as he left, all the momentum died. And it's taken a long time to really recapture and rekindle some of that. And so what we are trying to do is make charter cities not dependent on a single person and not dependent on a single project, but really to engage a broad set of stakeholders, demonstrate that charter cities help them advance their goals, begin to build a kind of set of knowledge that can be used in a multiplicity of circumstances uh, that can really accelerate the long-term development of a charter city. Second, um, right now, uh, Honduras is the only country in the world that has charter cities legislation. So while it might make sense to do a charter city development in Honduras, um, anywhere else, uh, you basically need um, millions of dollars to negotiate the government and you have a very unclear uh, chance of success at the beginning. So raising that money is very difficult. Getting the relationship with the government is very difficult. And understanding right, how to build uh, a, a new city is very difficult. And so because of that, we believe at, uh, um, at this time, there is a lot of value to be had in, in a nonprofit that's building up a set of ideas that's aligning stakeholders that can accelerate the long-term development of the space a little bit more quickly than um, a, a, a project uh, that might have a high failure rate would be able to do. Okay. Uh, what is the process of starting a non-profit, especially that one focuses on advocacy like? What are the unique benefits and challenges? Um, yeah, so I mean, the first thing like any business is you need money. You need money to pay yourself. You need money to um, hire people to uh, do the things that you want to do. And so I think probably the hardest thing uh, most face is identifying donors and supporters who believe in your mission, who believe in the vision, and who believe in your ability as a leader to execute it. Um, other things that are quite difficult uh, in terms of um, hiring. Um, hiring is always tricky, but because Charter Cities is a very new space, um, I think hiring is probably particularly tricky. For example, if you're running a tech startup, right, there are lots of people who work at a tech startup who know what tech startup is. Um, the Charter City space is much smaller and more fragmented. Um, so we have a onboarding process to we get people who are very excited about the idea, but oftentimes, so we have an onboarding process that's about a, um, a month long to really teach people the kind of a deep understanding of the idea so they can perform uh, more effectively at their jobs. The third thing that's quite difficult is just right being able to uh, develop milestones and, and traction. So um, we, we think of ourselves as kind of a startup nonprofit and most startups, they say, all right, we need X amount of money with X amount of money, we can do Y. Um, after we do Y, then we can raise another amount of money or whatever. Right. And with charter cities, it's a little bit trickier, right? Especially if we're building the ecosystem, right? What milestones can you say, all right, we are working effectively to our goal. I think there's a lot of nonprofits in DC that are just not very effective and they continue to exist and um, live on their donors' money. And maybe the donors are okay with that. But for me, at least, I try to think very carefully about like, my, I mean, my personal opportunity cost is quite high. So I don't want to work on something that's ineffective, right? There's a lot of other things I could be doing with my time. And so being very careful and thoughtful about this is the highest value add, this is working or this other approach is not working and making sure that we are making meaningful strides to charter cities. So we're not uh, wasting our donors money and, and wasting our, our time. That's a, there's some great points there. Um, what, do, what do people from the outside get the most wrong about about working in the charter city space broadly? 
So um, it depends on which stakeholder. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, I think it's mostly like people still kind of ignore us. We, we haven't really hit that threshold of engagement that I really want us to hit because um, I think that will really help us get the right introductions, get the right discussions. Um, some common misconceptions that we see. One are a lot of people, for example, there was a planned conference in Germany in um, last January uh, that ended up being canceled because of COVID. But the conference was about like um, the idea of charter cities. And so what we try to communicate is, look, this is not just an idea. There are projects on the ground that are moving forward. So in Honduras, there are three, um, I call them charter towns more than charter cities because none of them have the populations to be considered cities at this point, but they might grow to a sufficient level that they can be considered cities at some point in the future. Um, so these are projects that have a substantial degree of uh, legal autonomy. Um, one development, there is a, a guy who's trying to start a bank there and SWIFT uh, said that they would give him a new country ID code, right? And so that kind of gives you a sense of the degree of um, legal autonomy that these charter towns possess. Second is in addition to the right, Honduras, which has a lot of um, autonomy, there are over 200 master plan cities in the world. Uh, so one of these new city developments that we've been working with is a Nyimba economic city. They've acquired 9,500 hectares of land in Abia State, Nigeria. So this is approximately the same size as San Francisco, right? It's a huge amount of land. It's strategically located. Um, and they're still uh, raising funds for their phase one build out. But there are these new cities that are being built um, that can be leveraged into broader public policy goals. So I think one of the misconceptions that we have with people in the international development space is that it's just kind of this wacky idea without realizing that there are a lot of things that are happening on the ground that can be kind of improved and accelerated uh, if they have the right public policy support infrastructure for them. I see Charter City as sort of a 21st century version of the World Bank, except for you guys do it, uh, show it by doing rather than learning. You wrote a blog post about how somebody needs to be the translator between uh, 20th century institutions and 21st century in, uh, institutions. What do you think is the best way of doing that? Yeah, I think it's quite difficult. So um, for example, in the office recently, I got to explain to everybody what laser eyes on Twitter meant. <laughs> um, and right, this is kind of a joke because it's, it's silly, but it's also serious, right? Uh, um, El Salvador is passing legislation on Bitcoin. Their president has laser eyes on Twitter. They are sign signaling allegiance to this kind of set of ideas and this set of technology. It's quite possible to imagine in five years, if we accelerate the charter city space that people come up with, like, I don't know, there'd be some stupid like emoji that's associated with the charter city space. Um, like maybe it's just some like building or something, um, or maybe there's some filter that people use, right? And so there, there's also a lot of overlap between kind of people interested in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and people interested in charter cities. So there is this kind of, right, like these new institutions that are largely forming on the internet that have a lot of trouble interacting with legacy institutions. So that's like one example of kind of extreme internet institutions. One example of legacy institutions is, um, uh, that we, um, uh, one of my colleagues, our head of partnerships comes and says, we need an office phone. I was like, why do we need an office phone? You have a cell phone. And he says, okay, if you go meet an embassy, 
then like they want to call you to set up a meeting. They don't want to call you. They want to call your people. So you need an office phone that is the office phone that then is your kind of assistant who helps set up the meeting. And to me, I think like, okay, like, I guess if you need like a, an EA, sure. But that kind of idea of having that like separate, it's very formal. It's very bureaucratic. Um, it is this kind of old world. And so um, how do you bridge these gaps? I mean, it's not easy. When we are thinking about kind of building out the team in the office, my kind of rule of thumb is we want at least 30% of the people in the office to be very online so that they are able to understand the new world and influence that in the office. We also want people who understand the old world who are able to effectively engage because um, governments are going to be one of the last kind of movers in the new world is because governments tend to be very slow and bureaucratic um, and, and, and oftentimes are resistant to, to change. And so identifying who can be good representatives for the different world, bringing them together and then developing a strategic plan that can help you kind of form the partnerships, um, get the, the work done that you need in both of the worlds while still keeping the, the larger vision and mission in, 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 in mind. The third thing, and um, we'll see a new uh, aristocracy on the internet. The old aristocracy might have been, uh, you know, elected rep representatives, big company CEOs, and uh, academics who show up on the Atlantic. What do you think the new uh, aristocracy of the internet is going to be like, and how is that going to affect modern uh, culture? Because I see you as part of the group of extremely online people, the group I would count myself as. But how do you think that the new world of the extremely online is going to affect broader society? Well, I mean, we're already seeing it affect broader society. Um, so one example is in the 2000s for um the people who ran companies, they just engaged um, existing institutions as they were. So, right, uh, they would give to political parties, they would just kind of say, all right, we're entering a system, let's just engage the system. Now you have people who are beginning to think about system change. So you have like Tyler Cowan and Patrick Collison writing about progress studies, you have Mark Anderson writing about it's time to build. They're advocating not for engaging the system, but for a new vision. And right, much of this discussion is happening online. You see, for example, the New York Times, when they report on Scott Alexander, the reporting is just bad. Like whether or not you agree with the decision to dock him, it, it was just like not a very well like thought out or, or, or done report. They did not capture any of the nuance. They did not capture like the conversation. They, they, they like, and part of that might be intentional, but like, I think the broad part is that they just um, fundamentally are unable to understand these new subcultures and these new ideas that are forming, um, right? And so you have this kind of what might be called as like Silicon Valley um, elite who are like, sometimes they are um, very successful entrepreneurs, but sometimes it's just like people with weird ideas that, that on the internet. I went to an um, event that was organized by some very successful entrepreneurs and uh, Gorn was there and um, uh, right for, he's a blogger. And so one of the organizers of the event was talking to that organizer and they're like, did you meet Gorn? Yes, he's more normal than I thought. I think he lived in his mom's basement. And so, right, these are some very successful entrepreneurs. They can meet with anybody they want. They're worth uh, lots and lots of money. And what do they want to do? They want to meet with this random blogger who lives in their mom's basement because he writes better ideas than kind of the legacy institutions do. And um, I think that this will continue to change Right, Our, the legacy institutions are not going to go away. Um, Harvard has been around for 400 years, right? The New York Times has been, um, I don't know when it was founded, but it's been kind of the paper of record for like 100 years. 
Um, New York Times is adopting relatively well to the internet era. Um, but right, I think we should put this in kind of the broad context as comparable to the uh, industrial revolution in terms of impact on society. And we're only, my guess, is about halfway through the internet revolution. So all of the trends that we are seeing, I expect to accelerate over the next 20 to 30 years. Okay. Um, how would, what, you are a member of New Science, uh, Chartered Cities Institute and Radical Exchange. And these form a sort of, I would call a new set of intellectuals. How do you nurture, how does one or you or anybody nurture a set of people who are committed to bringing new ideas which are not in the mainstream? Because that, that's what I see all three of these doing. Yeah, so, um, well, I, so I'm no longer on the board of Radical Exchange. Um, but what I kind of um, see myself as is a little bit of a bridge so Tyler Cowen with um, Emergent Ventures, I see him as kind of seed funding for internet intellectuals. Um, so he provides all right, grants for career development for just kind of smart people he finds on the internet and gives them a little bit of support. What I see myself as doing and trying to do is what might be called kind of series A funding, right? I mean, I'm not actually giving money, but in terms of like mentorship, in terms of thinking how to take an idea take a network and begin to formalize it, begin to institutionalize it, begin to have a bigger impact. So with new science, um, right, Alexi is very smart, um, but the question is, how do you channel that, like somebody who is, is very smart, but doesn't have this institutional background, how do you take that, um, how do you channel that? And in Silicon Valley, there are a number of institutions that uh, take very smart people and give them the resources they need to have a big impact. So you have things like the TL Fellowship, you have things like Y Combinator, right? There are, um, you have uh, a lot of seed funds, right? There are literally multiple institutions built out to identify very smart, talented people and give them the, the, the kind of resources that they need to build out very successful companies. So the way I think about it is what does that look like for things that are much more difficult to monetize? So Alexi um, in New Science wants to write fix the institutions of science. That's very difficult to monetize. So how do you build out the mentorship network? How do you build out the funding network? How do you build out the um, kind of relationship network in a way that allows him to uh, uh, do it well? And that's kind of, I, I went through that process with uh, the Charter Cities Institute. And that's what I'm trying to help him with is when he thinks about like, what does it mean? To, like, how do you hire somebody? How do you fundraise? How do you um, what? How do you set milestones? Right, like all of these things. Uh, having somebody who has done it before, who he can bounce ideas off of, hopefully, I can provide a little bit of guidance that allows him to kind of focus on the the, the really like science aspects and not on these kind of administrative um, organizational aspects that uh, can be very difficult when you do them for the first time. Is it, is it a thought just came to me? Is it, is it possible to make that into a company of sorts, which are, you take, you go to these young, ambitious people, usually bloggers, and you tell them, uh, we guys, we'll take care of the organizational administrative aspects and, 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 and we'll give you the expertise required this for a fee. And all you have to do is to pay us money and, and give us 10% uh, equity in whichever new venture you build. Sort of a well, Y Combinator you, for nonprofits. 
for, well, for these yeah, nonprofits legally can't don't have equity, yeah. right? There are no dividends to nonprofits. Yeah. So I view this more as a reputational play where like from my self-interested perspective, like one, I enjoy giving back, I enjoy helping. And two, I kind of see one of the broader challenges that we face as rebuilding American institutions for the 21st century. And so as we saw with COVID, basically every um, public health institution failed, right? Masks were, don't wear masks until you have to wear masks, no rapid testing until November, um, no um, human challenge trials, just like complete failure um, on, almost the, on almost every margin by our public health institutions. And my guess is that almost all of our other institutions would similarly crumble if they were faced with a exogenous threat, even half the impact of COVID. The question kind of that occupies my mind more broadly is how do we rebuild some of these institutions for the 21st century such that we can be confident that they can undertake and, and respond to the new challenges that are being faced. And um, what I, I kind of hope to, to do is to right, help bridge the gap between Silicon Valley and Washington DC and like nonprofits. And there is a bias I think that many people in Silicon Valley have against nonprofits. I've been told on multiple occasions, I won't give to your nonprofit, but if you start a fund, I'll invest in that. If you start a company, I'll invest in that. Right, and uh, I think the fact is that there are some um, um, values that there, there are some things that you do that are important, but it's very difficult to capture the monetary value. And so, for those things that it's very difficult to capture the monetary value of, they can be very high impact. But a nonprofit is the better um, kind of organization that should execute on those. So, to be able to um, kind of guide and empower. Uh, a, 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 a generation of nonprofit founders who can work on some of these pressing challenges facing America and the world and be able to interface effectively with uh, kind of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and high net worth individuals who share their values but don't have the time to be able to really execute on the nonprofit front. What do you think led to the sclerosis in 20th century institutions, right? I mean, in 1948 or so, New York could um, vaccinate its entire population in, a, in, in two weeks. It, even in 1969, NASA could send a man to the moon on, on, what, was, on what was the original moonshot. But uh, 40, 50 years later, that, that's not happened. Why? What do you think has led to that? Yeah, I think my basic kind of new model is it's the, the, the vitality of a modern society is basically approximated by how recently it industrialized. So um, societies that industrialized very recently um, or are still industrializing, like China, have a lot of kind of vitality, a lot of will, a lot of ability to kind of accomplish um, and do new things. Once a society has industrialized, right, you, you kind of plateau in terms of there, there's no new industries, right? The only new industry in the last 70 years in the U.S. has really been um, information technology. And that's the only really vibrant part of U.S. culture or the U.S. economy. And so all of the other industries, all of the other institutions are effectively stuck in a um, kind of zero-sum game. And because of that, they've become, they've gotten engaged in turf wars. They're not looking to grow the pie said they're looking to protect their, um, their share. And uh, that ends up being uh, just not 
not a, a, a productive dynamic. And they, I think everybody begins to take kind of the, the, uh, the institutions and the wealth that we have for granted without realizing the kind of hard work and the, the necessity of, of, of building that, that went into that. Okay. Uh, I've always noticed that it takes a, a, a sort of personality type to work in a nonprofit that wants to have high impact, especially when that's, when that's involved with economics. What do you think that personality ty type is like? Uh, I don't know. I mean, um, my, my kind of friends, like at least in DC, who I, I see as somewhat similar, are just like kind of GMU types, either graduates of George Mason or like what I think of as adjacent to. So people who like weird ideas, people who share our, I think, concerns about the, the direction of the country and about the importance of accelerating economic growth. The other kind of set of institutions that I would look at is the EA community. And at least there, my stereotype um, of the EA community is people who tend to be like, right, there's a lot of overlap with the rationalism community. And so people who tend to uh, be um, uh, very much like cost-benefit analysis and very much like that they are um, having a big impact. Um, and so wanting to be able to say, like I am doing the, the kind of, highest impact thing and that has a certain type of like rationalist um, uh, analytic mentality that I think it uh, it attracts. Okay. Um, if we go, were to go back to charter cities for a moment, what's the big, what's the best steel man against them? You know, in uh, investment funds sometimes do a pre-mortem. If you had to describe the best case against charter cities, what would that be? So it's probably, I mean, there's a handful of cases. One is that um, uh, charter cities aren't possible. There just isn't the political will to accomplish them. Um, two is that uh, institutions don't actually matter that much for growth. So, right, China doesn't have inclusive institutions by any measure. Um, uh, three is that the more important determinant for growth is actually kind of trading patterns. Uh, so that would suggest that East Africa is gonna be built out much more aggressively than West Africa, because East Africa is trading with India and China and West Africa is right, trading with the US and Europe that mostly don't really care. Um, and therefore a charter city might help, but it's not gonna be a kind of game changer. Um, uh, other kind of good critiques are there is no good land left for charter cities. Um, that's another good one. So I think those are some of the kind of PMN arguments against charter cities. How much do you think geography matters in this? A lot of places you mentioned, you, you mentioned as examples of cities that delivered economic growth. Uh, Singapore would be, would be, you know, a, a large amount of Singapore's development was because of its uh, geography and status as a, as a trading port. Same would go for Hong Kong. The only exception I can think to this was uh, Dubai, but uh, what's your take on the geography hypothesis? Yeah, geography is obviously hugely important. Um, Dubai is also an entrepot. To me, the kind of example that I find most compelling is Shenzhen, uh, because Shenzhen uh, started, right, um, it's an industrial city. So, right, it has good geography in the sense it's near Hong Kong, 
but they developed by manufacturing a lot and working their way up to the value chain. Um, Hong Kong is also an intraco, but I think people sometimes underestimate that it um, also worked its way up the value chain, right? They industrialized. Uh, it, it didn't kind of jump the, the step, right? Dubai never really industrialized. They just bought it, brought it, they went straight to a service economy, but, but um, Hong Kong industrialized. I, I remember when I was a kid in the 90s, when we would buy toys, right? They would often say made in Hong Kong. Um, uh, and uh, so how does this relate to, to charter cities? I mean, so there's several ways to think about charter cities. One is building a new city in the middle of nowhere. So identifying a, a and this would be ideally kind of identifying a place for a deep water port, getting, I don't know, 100, 200, 300 square kilometers of land around that area, making a very heavy infrastructure investment, um, and then basically setting up some early stage uh, processing facilities. Um, and could you, you that, that model you would definitely want to do somewhere that has a deep water port, right? Uh, if you go to um, Antarctica, no matter how good your governance system is, nobody's gonna want to live there. Okay. Um, alternatively, you can build in the growth path of an existing city. So Lagos, for example, by some estimates is supposed to reach a population of 80 million people by 2100, eight zero million. Currently, most estimates have it at 20 million. So you can imagine identifying um, a piece of land that is in the growth path of the city. And you say, all right, this is in the growth path of the city. I am going to develop this. And within 50 years, I want to have, I don't know, two, three million people living on it, right? And there it's much less capital intensive because you don't need to build your own infrastructure. Um, the land can be a bit more expensive, but you have access to this broader labor market um, that you can use to catalyze growth. Uh, and right, but both of these factors take geography into account. Uh, like where it, where, where the city is, who are you trading with? What, what is this broader type of um, engagement look like? So you can't ignore geography when you're thinking about charter cities. You need to be linked to the kind of local, regional, and international economy. And these are all important considerations um, uh, to, to, to think about when, when figuring out how to, how to kind of plan the city development. One, um, one thing I found, one thing I didn't understand about charter cities, where a lot of the end game for charter cities is that they focus on um, services and because, because of the strong legal protection that a, a service economy would require. Do you think you can build a charter city where manufacturing is the primary economic activity like it was in, in Shenzhen? Yes, um, and I think we generally advocate for manufacturing um, because we think that's easier to scale. Uh, so, right, if you're doing service sector jobs in a country where um, the average years of schooling is like five years and or 10 years, but they don't actually receive much education in the schooling, it will be very hard to move directly to a service sector economy that requires a much higher degree of skills. Um, so we generally advocate for starting with manufacturing and working your way up the supply chain where the manufacturing that you want to, to begin with, look at whatever, if you look at Africa, for example, there's a lot of resource extraction. So set up early stage processing for whatever the resource is being extracted. Maybe it's copper, maybe it's palm oil, but instead of shipping it to China or shipping it to South Africa or Portugal, you set up the processing facilities in the charter city and that works as the initial agglomeration. I think the one caveat that makes this quite difficult is that um, you need, uh, um, that you need, uh, um, so wages are a very important determinant of manufacturing competitiveness. And 
African wages are actually substantially higher, for example, than Bangladesh and higher than some places in Southeast Asia, where a lot of this um, manufacturing uh, is currently taking off after it's being offshored from China. So one of the, the, the challenges will be to identify um, industries where there is a value add at the price point of labor that is currently um, in many African countries. The, the only African countries that have really been able to compete in textile manufacturing, for example, with Bangladesh are Ethiopia and sort of Rwanda. Um, but most other African countries have um, uh, uh, incomes that are higher. Uh, so that kind of removes this um, step on the industrialization chain that requires you to then be think a little bit more carefully about um, how to target initial industries and how to structure the kind of long-term growth of the of the cities. And that's really interesting because normally the stereotype of Africa is that it's poorer than Bangladesh. Bangladesh has, has grown a lot. It's GDP per capita it has eclipsed India's and Pakistan's. But why does this happen? Why do African cities, despite um, despite the overall lower GDP per capita, have higher wages than Bangladesh? So um, I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, uh, right? Um, to be competitive with uh, uh, um, textile wages, my understanding is it's about $900 a year. Um, and like there's a few African countries with that, but Nigeria is at about 2000 per capita a year, right? Um, uh, Kenya is the same. And so part of it is in some of these countries, it's basically the spillover effects from the natural resources. So enough of the wealth, not a lot of it, but right, it trickles down. So right, even if you're not particularly productive, you have this benefit of the natural resources. Um, but otherwise, I, I, I don't really know why there are these substantial differences in, in productivity in, in these countries. Let's say you're 85 years old and you're looking back on your entire career in chartered cities and maybe elsewhere. What would you consider a success? Um, I mean, our our mission is to lift 10 million people out of poverty. So what we would want is, I don't know, let's say a, double, a dozen charter cities with maybe a million people in each of them, where each of those charter cities have grown at a rate that's, I don't know, let's say 4%, um, 4 percentage points higher than the host country over an extended time horizon, where we have seen people who move to that city um, end up uh, becoming wealthier and um, leading better lives. And ideally, we have seen then the host country or the surrounding region adopt similar policies that allow for economic growth to um, uh, uh, allow for kind of broader regional development. So I think success looks like, um, yeah, it tends to be people out of poverty and kind of regional development that can reasonably be traced to charter cities. Okay. If you had to pick one location in the developed world, to build a charter city, where where would that be? Um, uh, Canada. Why Canada? So global warming is going to make a lot of regions in the north um, that were previously unlivable livable. Um, there will be uh, the opportunity to build a port that will um, uh, now, right, previously it might have been iced over, but now maybe it's not iced over anymore. And so there will also be opportunity for um, resource extraction and um, agriculture that were previously not profitable due to weather uh, conditions. And so um, I think that there, uh, right, the other kind of country is Russia. Russia is not virtually developed. It's like uh, um, 
but I think kind of Canada offers an opportunity for a, I'm not sure it would have to be a charter city, Canada is like pretty well governed. Um, but in terms of kind of a, a, a new trade route, uh, I think Canada will be best positioned to take advantage of that. And that's where I would think about focusing the new city. You have a PhD in economics. Do you think that the, that the average high achieving student who wants to do economics should do a PhD or do something no. else? No, PhDs are dumb. <laughs> Why? Um, so the job market is extremely competitive. Economics is one of the better PhDs because it's actually useful outside of academia. But if you look at humanities, right, um, most humanities programs, even the best ones, have a lot of trouble placing their students. They basically become uh, uh, kind of cheap labor for um, uh, professors. Uh, and I think it's going to cause, it, 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 there's, there's like a lot of resentment and there's a lot of frustration because um, like I honestly think a lot of these graduate students are basically being taken advantage of. They're being promised like, oh, you'll get a, a good job, whatever. And if you look right, like even with multiple publications, even with very serious work, there just aren't enough professorial jobs. And that's only going to increase because the U.S. college age population um, peaked, I think like three or four years ago. Um, Second is if I actually look at my PhD in economics, um, I probably could have learned everything that I learned in it in like a year, um, right? I have friends who did not do a PhD in economics who I think kind of, I consider like somewhat equivalent um, uh, just because they have all of the domain specific knowledge, um, right? It's nice to have Dr. my name, makes some people take me more seriously, um, but um, right, I, I, if you are that smart, there are far, far more productive things that you can do with your time. If you want to learn a specific subject, go do, uh, I don't know, do a master's um, or just self-teach. Um, but my, my general career advice is, right, we're halfway done with the internet boom. Um, learn to code and go to Silicon Valley and there is still gold in the streets. What do you see broadly on the future of the US versus um, Southeast Asia or Asia broadly? Do you think, America is still number one, the number one place to be for ambitious people? Yes, definitely. Um, right, there's obviously a lot of problems with America, but um, like China doesn't let like, right? you, you, you can't become Chinese, right? You can live there, but you will never be Chinese. Um, uh, in Europe, I, I mean like maybe Germany is a good place, but again, it's very difficult to become German. And America has a much better labor market than Germany does, and is generally more innovative, um, right? If you just look at the tech boom, right, the tech boom is only now coming to Europe. It's only in the last like right three years that there's more than like one unicorn a year. Um, uh, so they're about 10 to 15 years behind the U.S. in terms of the tech boom. Um, uh, the, the places I go in Europe that I think is most interesting is the U.K. Right? I was a remainer, but I, after seeing how the U.K. handled COVID and how the EU did, I think I'm leaning in the Brexit direction. Um, and I think they're still relatively dynamic. Canada is also a good place, right? It's much easier to immigrate to Canada and it's very friendly. Um, and they have a lot of the silver benefits of, of being close to the US. But in general, I, I still think that the US is is right, uh, kind of the, the best place in the world. India, is, India, I expect to grow very rapidly, at least in, in the kind of technology sector. I think India is lagging on industrialization and I expect it to continue to lag. But the technology sector in India, um, if you're a very smart Indian, it might make sense to stay in India than to come to the US. 
depending on what your network is and, and what your goals are. What's your outlook on Southeast Asia? Because I live in Singapore, which is the uh, the first charter city, maybe second after Hong Kong. How do you think this region is going to grow? Oh, I mean, it's already it's growing fantastically. I mean, Singapore, their main challenge is demographics, right? Your birth rate is like 1.2 or something. It's really low. Um, and uh, I, I, I think Singapore will, will struggle a lot as I don't know if the workforces are declined decline or not, but I think that, that's the, the kind of serious challenge. Um, Southeast Asia, right, like Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, they're all growing at like six, eight percent a year. Um, they're basically getting kind of the spillover benefits from China um, and uh, seeing a lot of um, industrialization happening. I think I, I am quite bullish on that as a region. Um, like geopolitically, uh, China is obviously going to continue to expand their influence, right? The U.S. is going to try to play a buffer, um, but uh, it's China's backyard much more than it is the U.S.'s backyard. Um, so you'll see some tension. And a lot of the countries do have like a long history of resistance of um, China, right? If you look at uh, like the, um, Vietnam or Korea, they both have a pretty antagonistic relationship with, with China. So you see like a pretty strong pushback, but uh, China is a, is a very powerful country. So I, I do expect to see increasing influence, um, but I'm, I'm quite bullish on, on Southeast Asia as a, as a region, at least over the next like 10, 20 years. I think after that, like right, China faces very severe demographic problems. And once those become like apparent in China's economy, I expect that the, there would be a kind of regional spillover in terms of how um, Southeast Asia and, and nearby economies are affected as well. Okay. Um, you mentioned tech as the place where ambitious people should go. Uh, is that, are there other places you think ambitious people should go today or is tech the, the only place? Um, tech is definitely number one. Um, the other place that I think in, I would speak for at least the U.S. and maybe Anglophone countries as well. I do think that there is a, um, this is kind of tech adjacent. I do think there is a opportunity to have a very big impact on policy. So um, most DC institutions are set to be kind of disrupted. And I am beginning to see the first um, kind of core of people who I believe will contribute to that disruption um, begin to kind of emerge and shape their ideas and for them to develop plans. And so I think the next kind of five to 10 years will be very fruitful in this regard. So if you do have a preference for policy or if you don't like coding, whatever, right? I do believe that there is a very um, big role to play in kind of translating a lot of the kind of valley ideas and, 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 and their kind of thoughts and behavioral patterns to policy and, and to um, um, influence like that. Okay. Um, I, I guess um, in addition to tech, if you consider tech as only Right, like as computers, there's also biotech. Biotech's on the verge of a very big um, thing. Um, space, I have mixed feelings about space. I don't understand how the economics work, but there's a lot of things going on in space, so that might be useful. Um, right, you have transportation, right? There's supersonic jets that are being developed, um, self driving cars, especially the Hyperloop. Um, so, you kind of, if you define tech broadly, then you have um, uh, like all of these things count. If you define tech narrowly, then there are all these like tech adjacent things that I think are also um, going to be pretty high impact. So my last question to you is, um, what ad advice do you wish you had gotten when you started your career? Well, I don't know. No, that advice would be helped because I'm very stubborn and I don't listen to other people. <laughs> so uh, I don't think what, what, like much advice would have would helped that much. I think um, 
like what, what, what I struggled with early is I am uh, very lazy. So I find it very difficult to focus on things that I don't find interesting. And that caused me to have bad grades in college. That caused me to kind of have mediocre grades in graduate school and not engage the professors I want to engage. Um, like really what I think would have helped me the most is being put in an environment that I could thrive. And I bounced around and I tried to find the environment, but it really took me a long time to do that. Um, and I think there was a lot of self-doubt and a lot of kind of, um, I don't know, um, uh, personal like dislike, disliking myself because of that, because I felt that I did have this potential and I kept being in situations where I would screw them up and that, that, that was just like not, not make for a happy person. Um, so I guess one is kind of, um, um, maybe be more forgiving, uh, of yourself. So I continue to make lots of stupid mistakes and I'm sure I will continue to make them, um, but kind of judging yourself by your, um, what you're accomplishing and um, what you reasonably hope to accomplish and how you're growing, I think is, is more important than being very hard on you for, for some mistakes that you're making. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, I guess, some, some advice that I give a, a younger version of me. Okay, uh, thank you so much for being on it. And you've been a really, you've been a really interesting guest. Uh, great, thank you. Um...